Hello and welcome to 15 Minutes on Health Inequalities. I'm Alastair Leyland from the MRC CSO Social and Public Health Sciences Unit and with me I've got Ruth Dundas, also from the Social and Public Health Sciences Unit. And today we're talking to Anna Pierce, also from the same unit. Uh, and we're talking to Anna about the report she's just written for the World Health Organization. Uh, this is guidance on early years, childhood and adolescence. So, Anna, what does your report cover? Well, the brief that we were given by um, WHO Europe was to define the problem of child health inequalities and then lay out existing evidence for how they might be reduced in order to provide policy guidance across the European region. And so there have been several reports written like this, each focusing on a different stage of the life course. And our report that we'll be talking about today spans the period from birth to the teenage years. How did the report come about and um, why do you think the WHO are interested in this area of kind of policy approaches for health inequalities? Well, the, the reports form a part of a wider initiative um, that's been ongoing for some time, overseen by WHO Europe, um, and it's aiming to shift the political and policy focus around health inequalities from um, not just describing the problem, but to capturing progress and enabling action. Um, and one of its key objectives is to create a tool to promote and support policy action across the region, and this is where the report comes in. In your report, you talk about childhood as being a critical period. Why is childhood so important for health inequalities? Well, there's a whole host of reasons, um, really. I can talk at length about them, but some of the, the main points that we raise in the report are, are first that children deserve and require special protection, and that's because often they're unable to speak out for themselves, and also they have little control over the environments that influence their health and their health behaviours. And we also know that the early years is the most effective time to intervene in the life course um, to improve health but also reduce health inequalities. And that's because there's really dramatic and important developments that take place during childhood. So, for example, brain development, physical growth and the formation of health behaviours. And so these are lay the foundations for health and well-being across the life course. And they also have a knock-on effect on other really important outcomes like education, employment and relationships. And there's also now a really compelling economic case um, for intervening in the early years. Um, and this is shown in the infamous Heckman curve, which shows that essentially the earlier we intervene, the greater the economic return. Okay. Your diagram about the... Social determinants, I think that really nicely shows how the layers are all interrelated and also factors within a layer are also interrelated. Were there any policies that you came across that sought to address more than one relationship? And if so, how successful were they? So Ruth, you probably recognise this figure from a, um, a review that we wrote in the Archives of Disease and Childhood I think it was last year, um, with colleagues from the University of Liverpool who were also involved in, in the WHO report. Um, and so essentially we've taken the fabulous Dahlgren and Whitehead social determinants rainbow, which is very widely used, and just adapted it slightly for, for children. 
Um, and the reason that we, we've done this is just to emphasise the unique role that parents and carers play and the need for sort of society, communities and governments to support them. Um, so, but going back to, to your question, I guess there were lots of policies and interventions that aimed at addressing more than one factor in the entire rainbow, but then also multiple factors across different layers of the rainbow as well, so sort of different levels of the system. Um, there are many early years interventions, like ch children's centres, for example, which take a very holistic approach, and so they're designed to support a multitude of factors. So, for example, they provide advice on jobs and training, they signpost to services, um, be it health or financial support, and they also offer a range of activities and programmes that support children's health and development. So that might be supporting parenting, attachment, um, parents' mental health, and the list goes on. So, yeah, I suppose to, to summarise what I've just said, a lot of early years interventions are holistic. Um, but that's not to say that all successful policies um, do tackle different parts of, of the rainbow. So there are some very specific legislative changes which have been really important for reducing health inequalities. Um, so, for example, around seatbelts or smoking in public places. In terms of what's most effective, I guess my sense of the evidence was that interventions that... Um, are holistic, hold most potential, and that's because they have the benefit to influence a multitude of risk factors and also outcomes. So if you take social housing, for example, it has the potential to um, improve respiratory conditions, mental health, academic performance, and reduce the likelihood of unintentional injuries and so forth. Okay. So are you actually, are you considering a systems approach, so like how changes in one part of the system might impact on other parts? Yeah, that's a really difficult question. And I, I feel like I have to put my hands up and say, to me, systems approaches are a, a, um, a specialty in their own right, and it's certainly not one that I have expertise in. Um, but I guess I'd like to think that we were... Our thinking was informed by a lot of the ideas behind a systems approach when we were writing the report. Um, I suppose to think of an example that came out while we were writing it was um, that of um, childcare. So now a lot of countries across the WHO Europe region offer um, free early years education programmes, so essentially uh, free childcare um, in the first few years of life, particularly around toddlerhood. Um, and so these programmes have enormous potential to improve child development and reduce inequalities because they're universal. But at the same time, in order for those um, policies to work effectively, you also need to take into account other um, factors within the system. So, for example, employment policies. Um, so the ability for families to benefit from that childcare, which often is only for half a day um, during uh, weekdays. Um, you need to have flexible working um, policies. You need to have affordable um, wraparound childcare. Um, I think the, the beauty of a systems approach is it really does make you think about these things from an inequalities angle, because you could see, for example, that mothers who are working in or from more dis 
from more advantaged backgrounds probably have more autonomy over their working hours, their place of work, and they're more, also more able to afford wraparound childcare that's high quality. Okay. Yeah, there are lots of um, really interesting figures in the report and showing uh, performance across different countries. And my temptation certainly is always to focus on my country and sort of look to see how we're doing in comparison. So for the UK, what is the overall picture, do you think, in terms of health inequalities? In a way, I think it's it's hard to give a single answer to that because it depends on what health outcomes you're looking at and also how you're measuring inequality, looking at absolute or relative differences, are you looking at area deprivation or are you comparing household income? Um, but I think overall, it would be fair to say that the UK is not doing as well as it should be in comparison to other countries that have um, similar levels of wealth. Um, so one of the figures in the report is um, demonstrating the level of, levels of inequality in infant mortality across the um, WHO European region and we see that inequalities in the UK are greater than they are in Sweden, the Netherlands, Germany and even Poland and we're more comparable with Greece and the Czech Republic. Um, I think this really isn't good enough given, as I said, the sort of average levels of wealth that we have in the UK um, but also that in a way we've been at the forefront of health inequalities research for such a long time and it's been such a big policy issue for us um, and as we can see in, in that graph, um, in that same figure, it shows that inequalities in um, infant mortality hasn't, hasn't been changing over time. They seem to have stagnated in the UK, which is worrying. Right. And within the UK, do you have a sense as to how the different countries are doing? So how Scotland compares to England, for example? So as was that is a point of frustration at times, um, relying on OECD data. So we were obviously for this report looking for comparability across the WHO region and oftentimes this data um, were only available sort of collated at the UK level. Um, so it is hard to make comparisons. Um, and as I say, that is frustrating, particularly when we know how different the UK countries are from each other. Um, so we weren't able to pull that out in the report, although so it's my sense of the, the data are where they're available to directly compare. They're often not, even within the UK, it's hard to make direct comparisons. But inequalities do appear to be bigger in Scotland than England, for example, in terms of um, outcomes for sort of health and life expectancy generally, but also in thinking about children, inequalities in smoking and pregnancy are larger. I think inequalities in infant mortality are larger as well. Um, but that's not to say it's always the case. Um, inequalities in the uptake of childhood immunisations, for example, tend to be lower in Scotland um, than England. Um, I suppose also compa comparing across those countries, the UK countries also um, disguises local variation as well. So if you take England, for example, inequalities are far larger in the north than they are in the mm -hmm. south. And in Scotland, Glasgow tends to, to perform um, less well than the, the rest of the country. Okay, so why do you think that health inequalities research suffers from the inverse evidence law? I mean, I find that quite frustrating. Health inequalities have been on the both the political and research agenda for 
quite a while now. Um, is it, do you think, because policy is kind of like siloed in a way? So if, if you take, for instance, welfare policy, they're not really seen as a health policy. Yeah, so I, th- I think we refer to the inverse evidence law somewhere in the report and to, to clarify to, to listeners in case they haven't come across the term is essentially the idea that we have the least evidence about the policies that we think are most likely to be effective for improving health and, and um, in particular reducing inequalities. Um, and so I guess I use that term a lot when... Um, expressing frustrations about the lack of evidence about upstream influences on on health inequalities. Um, The reasons behind that, I think, uh, are many, and I could take up this whole 15 minutes complaining about them, Um, but I suppose one of the uh, big issues that I think is a barrier is just that upstream policies are that much harder to evaluate. Um, So you can't test a policy in a trial setting in the way that you would a drug. Um, And that's because you can't give them to individuals. They occur at area, they occur at the area level normally, nationally, and even if they're rolled out, say, within regions of a country, obviously people don't live their lives within um, sort of administrative boundaries, so you can have spillover effects. Um, So I think because of that we can drift downstream, but... Also, there are many downstream influences that can't be tested in trial settings. So, for example, smoking in pregnancy or breastfeeding. The same um, issues apply, but it's easier to to look at those influences on health in observational data because they vary more at the individual level. Um, so I think that's for, for that reason, it can be really, really hard to um, use observational data in the same way to, to look at the impact of upstream factors. Um, but that's not impossible, though, to, to look at this. So, Ruth, you're an expert in natural experiments, so I be careful how much I say. Um, but they do offer a really powerful opportunity for evaluating upstream influences. Um, so with a really good example being of the introduction of smoke-free legislation. So they they offer up opportunities, but I think there are still challenges and they require data um, in particular formats over certain periods of time. Um, and also you are still making assumptions about policy changes occurring in isolation when we know that things are changing all the time. So teasing teasing out the effects of one policy versus another can be hard. Um, so I think, say, in the case of smoke-free legislation, at the same time, there were changes to pricing and packaging that were occurring at the same time, which can make it hard to, to say that, that one policy was having an effect over another. And you do provide a nice list of potential policies for reducing uh, inequalities under all of your conditions. But one thing I, I started wondering is how well the policies that you describe have actually been evaluated. You've just mentioned smoke-free um, uh, legislation, which was well evaluated. But in general, how well do you think these policies have been considered? So I think it's... It's, it's quite mixed. 
Um, and we were quite flexible in the types of evidence that we included. And that was to avoid that issue of, that we've just been discussing about um, the inverse evidence law. And so a lot of policies um, and interventions that hold lots of potential for, for reducing child health maybe haven't been evaluated in the, in the same way as, as other interventions. So looking at the types of evidence we were including, there are lots of early years interventions um, and they have been well evaluated and lots of them have been rolled out um, in disadvantaged groups. So take Head Start and the Family Nurse Partnership in the US. Um, we know that they can improve outcomes among disadvantaged groups, therefore it stands to reason that they have potential to reduce inequalities. Other policies um, will naturally benefit less advantaged groups just because of the um, because of the factors that they're trying to to alter. So, for example, improvements to social housing would it would benefit um, disadvantaged groups and therefore um, reduce inequalities. Um, and there are also lots of policies where there's very compelling evidence of the impact that they've had at the population level, so they can improve things, they can improve population health overall, but there's typically a lot less evidence about how that impact or that benefit varies by socioeconomic group. There are, there are quite um, big gaps in the evidence around that, um, but I think in cases like that you, you can't overlook the the potential that those policies um, hold for improving health and reducing inequalities is just that you have to consider more carefully how you would roll out those policies and think about making sure they're delivered to the groups that will benefit most in a way that will benefit them most. And uh, what is the take home message from the report for health inequalities? Just one. Just one, if you can. Okay, I will talk very quickly and yeah. not pause between sentences. Um, I think well, what we're trying to get across in the report is that child health inequalities are an enduring problem right across the European region, um, and they're incredibly unfair. And we can't sit back and rest on our laurels. We have to keep working towards their reduction. And there's no golden bullet, but... I think, as the report shows, we need to intervene early, we need to focus upstream, and we need to strive for improvements right across the system. Um, I think it's going to involve effort across departments from the, the um, point of view of policymakers. And as researchers, we need to continue to build the evidence base with a focus on those upstream influences and differential effects. Um, I suppose I feel that we're witnessing a step change in the moment in the availability of data that we have to build upon that evidence base and also the methods um, to enable us to evaluate what holds potential for reducing inequalities. So it feels like an exciting time to be a health inequalities researcher even though the, the problem that we're tackling is quite bleak. Okay, thank you. It's nice to finish on a bright note. Um, that was great. Uh, we'll have details, uh, including links to the report and other accompanying materials in the episode notes. Uh, but Anna, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks.